You're listening to the Yoga Inspiration Podcast with me, your host, Kino McGregor. I created this series to keep you inspired to get on the mat every day so that you can practice yoga and change your world, starting from the inside out, one breath at a time. Thanks so much for listening. Your support means everything to me. All right. Welcome back, everyone. First, uh, thank you for the practice this morning. I'm always so, so grateful uh, to share the space with very dedicated and sincere students. And I want you to acknowledge that for yourself, first of all, because there are so many things that could be happening on a Saturday morning. And of all of those things, you chose to do the practice today. That's awesome, you know? And without that, the practice won't continue. So I want you to acknowledge first and foremost your own effort to make the space for the practice because this counts so much. And without that effort that you make and the commitment that you make to do the practice, then then what? And then there's no practice. Second, not only did you show up, but you gave it your all. And that means a lot too. Whatever that was, whether it was just showing up and being present or whether it was listening to the body and sitting out certain postures here or there, or whether it was just opening your mind or, or, or whether it was just working really hard physically, whatever your effort was that you could show up and bring today, you did that. And that means a lot, you know? So oftentimes what we think is that we sort of place our own effort as last. We don't take the time to acknowledge the goodness that we bring to the table. And instead, what we do is we focus on all of the things that we've done wrong, you know? Oh, well, I didn't jump back every time. Oh, well, I just sat there for a lot of it. Oh, I had to take all these breaks. And then in your mind, there's always this comparison to um, what is usually not a real person, you know? We compare ourselves to a mythical super yogi that is out there that does every jump back, you know, that does every posture and every bind and has perfect back bends and perfect, you know, flexibility and perfect concentration. And we have in our mind this sort of super yogi that's never late, never misses a practice, always eats the yogic food, never eats too many donuts, never has too many glasses of wine, never has too much fun. Right. So we have it in our idea, this sort of uber yogi that's out there, this super yogi that's out there. Compare ourselves to them. But this is uh, very much an unrealistic goal that merely sets ourselves up to discount our own effort, to devalue the effort that we bring to the practice. Now, on the flip side of that, I notice that particularly in Ashtanga yoga, we have very few people on the flip side. There's, of course, few of them, but there's very few people on the flip side. So if you don't devalue your own effort, what's the opposite of that? Yeah, we have a little hubris or pride about our effort. Look what I did, you know. Look, I've jumped back now, you know. Look, I've put my legs behind my head, you know. Great, now what, you know. Look, I did this. I practice every day, you know. I only eat lentils. <laughs> I mean, poor you if you do that, but <laughs> the lentil not my favorite of all the beans that are out there. Um, you know, so, so, so in Ashtanga yoga, we, we, there are some, there are, of course, that, that, that happens, but I notice that particularly in the Ashtanga path, there are more people who don't value their own effort, more people that are too hard on themselves, that hold themselves up to this mythical standard that doesn't exist. In, in, um, in psychology, this is very similar to, but is not exactly the same, of a concept called the paradox of choice. And the paradox of choice happens when there are too many potential points of comparison. And while it's not a choice of, of comparison necessarily, when we have our own effort and we have the effort of those that are outside of ourselves, it's something very similar that we do. I'd like to give you a very simple example of the paradox of choice so that you can understand um, kind of what this is about. So um, has everybody in here at some moment gone to the store and bought peanut butter? You've had that experience, right? Okay, me too. Um, now, when you go to the store in the United States of America and you go to buy peanut butter, what is the experience like? 
overwhelming. It's overwhelming. You go in and you're like, okay, I'm going to get some peanut butter. Wow. Okay, I'm going to get salted, unsalted, with oil, with palm oil, with avocado oil. I'm going to get organic, non-organic, non-GMO, organic, non-GMO. I'm going to get sweetened, unsweetened, honey roasted. I'm going to get peanuts blended with other nuts that I don't really know about. And now, and then it goes on and on. And then that's just one brand. You know, that was like one brand. Now we're on to the next brand. And this is a small batch jungle peanut. Okay, what does that mean? With, with salt, without salt, sprouted, non-sprouted, oil, no oil, no stir, stir. And you're thinking, gosh, I, um, I, I, I really, I just wanted the peanut butter that goes on toast. <laughs> Which one is that? You know, and then you ask the person, excuse me, which peanut butter is good on toast? Well, I don't know. Do you want salted or unsalted? Or you want that? And I'm like, <laughs> and so, you know, I mean, I'm from the United States. So I grew up with this wall of peanut butter. So I'm familiar with the wall of peanut butter. You know, and so you make a lot of bad choices. And at some moment you get your brand and then you just don't look at all the other brands. And you're probably missing out on something, but you just, you know, move on with your life. I think actually um, the first time I understood how unique this wall of peanut butter was, was um, when I went to Denmark and when Tim, my husband is Danish and from Denmark and we've been together for um, more than 20 years. First time I went to visit him, I said, I, I'm American, I like peanut butter and I wanted to buy some peanut butter. And I went into the store in Denmark and I found two types of peanut butter. That's it, one brand, two types, organic, salted and unsalted. And I felt, I was gonna get the salted first of all. Um, second of all, I felt that I was missing something. This peanut butter was excellent. It tasted really good. But when I got it home, I felt like something is wrong with this peanut butter. They didn't have my choices. So this is illustrative of the paradox of choice. And so what happens is, so, and then Tim had the opposite experience. He tells a similar story to me. I went back and I said, there's only two types of peanut butter. What am I going to do? And he's like, do you like the one you bought? I don't think so. I don't know. You're eating it. I know. I don't know. And then he shared with me his first experience of coming to New York City and when he was a young dancer and having his roommate send him to the store to pick up peanut butter, and he stood there in front of the wall of peanut butter, immobilized. All the different brands and all the different options. And his version was to close his eyes, put his hand out, pick a peanut butter, and go back. And he chose Skippy. And then all of his roommates made fun of him. You bought Skippy? Why did you buy Skippy? And he's like, I don't know. It's just overwhelming. In Denmark, we have salted and unsalted, you know? So the human brain is very interesting. There's a certain amount of choices that we can handle, our capacity for thinking. And that's somewhere between five and 10, right? If we have less than five choices, we feel like we didn't have enough alternatives. We feel like it's not enough to choose from. We feel like we're dipped. If there's, if there's the choice between one or two, we feel like there must be something better out there that I haven't seen. So even if it's an amazing experience, we feel like, eh, Mm, not happy with it. But worse is when there are too many alternatives. If there's more than 10 options, this is what's the paradox of choice, is when there are more than 10 options to any given uh, course of action, our brain takes the best features of all of the options available and blends them into some mythical, non-existent, super uber peanut butter that doesn't exist. And that will stay in our mind as this mythical sort of imaginary unicorn peanut butter that will never reach, doesn't exist, but is perfect and contains everything we'd ever want out of a peanut butter, but is always unattainable because it's not real. And it takes the best of this and this and this and this and this and creates a dream that we'll never attain and we're always unhappy. We can never be happy with our peanut butter. Right? So when we take that same thinking, we apply it into our practice. If we start looking around at all the other yoga practitioners and we start playing this kind of comparison game, oh, look at her and look at her and look at her and look at her, look at them and look at them. And, and then we have this uber yogi that's out there. That's this perfect yogi that doesn't exist. Someone that gets up at the right time, never misses a practice, hits every jump back, does, you know, super devotional, completely understands every aspect of the practice, but is also a really funny and nice person, um, you know, and isn't too dogmatic and walks that line between, you know, um, just being a good person and being really devoted to the practice and 
you know, and then, they, and then we compare ourselves to that person. And then we're, we become the peanut butter that we're never happy with. And then we just sit there and go, well, I'm not this. Well, I'm not that. Oh, but you did this. Yeah, but, yeah, but, but I could have, but I, and then we'll always find fault with ourselves in that model because this is kind of the training that we have to break out of that, of that concept of comparison. We have to break out of the limitations of the paradox of choice to understand, first of all, that we're not making a choice between me or them. We're not making a choice between their success and my success in the yoga practice. It doesn't work like that. We're not having to choose a singular option. And singularity is something that creates the paradox of choice, right? Because you go to the store, unless you're going to buy all the peanut butters, you're going to leave hopefully with just one jar of peanut butter. I'll be honest with you. I have, if I get myself into a paradox of choice, I often end up buying like too many peanut butters, you know, and I'm like, but we could try the jungle one and then we could try the salted one and then we could, maybe we could mix them all together. I'm like searching for the Uber peanut butter by trying to blend them all together. Um, but I don't recommend that to anyone. I just end up with too much peanut butter that I give away. Oh, do you want my peanut butter? You know, it doesn't really work. We can't do that with ourselves. Um, but what we do sometimes with that, what that looks like when we take it into the practice, instead of just being happy with where we are, with what we brought to the practice, with our effort, say we wanted to practice six days a week, but we can only do five, rather than just accepting that, what we end up doing is start thinking of other things we could add in, other things we could do. So this is when we're, we're trying to grasp for that. Well, maybe, maybe I shouldn't do Ashtanga five days a week. Maybe... Maybe, maybe I should add in a, a day of running and maybe I should add in a day of this and I should add in a day of that. Or we start sampling multiple styles of yoga just to like figure out, okay, well, I want to try this and bring the best of that and try this and bring the best of that. And we start experimenting and we start experimenting with different teachers because now we weren't happy with that one path. We weren't happy. What we weren't happy with is our own effort. So we're learning in the practice is how to understand that it's not a singularity. There's not, you're not going to leave the practice with like, the, 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 or the practice doesn't give only one path. There's not like one peanut butter that, that, that works in the practice. In, in other words, we have to figure out how one person can have their experience and that's valid and we can have our experience and that's valid. And even though they're not equivalent in terms of what it actually looks like from the outside looking in, from the inside, the inner experience is not only not equivalent, but neither should it be. And so that's something very important to understand. What you experience in your practice is always going to be best evaluated in the private, personal, and in the unseen. And if we're evaluating our practice by the external measurements, then we'll end up in that difficulty that is the paradox of choice of comparing one person to another, one person to another, and creating this mythical version of ourselves that we'll never reach, you know? This mythical version of the self we think we could be, if only this, if only that, if only I could just get my stuff together and practice every day, then I feel like I could really do something. Man, if I could only get my stuff together and not drink that glass of wine every day when I am chilling out at the end of the day, then, you know, if only I could get to bed earlier. I don't know if anybody has that one. If only I could get to bed earlier, I could finally get a good night's sleep. If only I wasn't eating so much chocolate so late at night, but it's just lying there. Yeah. Somebody has to eat it. You know? It's not good for the dog. Right? So when we think about that, if we're in that stage, we're playing the paradox of choice in a very uh, kind of in, 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 in a very dangerous gamble that we'll make with our own self-worth. So when we think about the worthiness of who we are in the practice, the most important thing to understand is that the yoga practice was never meant to be an external performance. The yoga practice was always an internal journey. And the inner journey, nobody can value except you. You can evaluate it. You know, there are things that you'll experience on the path through asana, yes, but perhaps even more so with the more subtle aspects of the practice, like meditation, contemplation, introspection, when the yoga starts to border on the verge of prayer. When we get to that space, then there are experiences which are life-changing, experiences which are so intimately personal 
that you'll struggle to describe them. And I would imagine that everyone who's joining today has had some experience like that. You may have never told anyone else. Maybe a private experience. You never need to tell anyone. It's not a, even to try to tell and share about those experiences uh, can never point to the depth of those experiences. There is a tradition in our yoga practice where we have this kind of mythical uh, goal that we're reaching, which is to experience samadhi. And so many people think of samadhi as a goal that's outside of themselves. But what we've misunderstood is, again, we're creating a hierarchy of spiritual practice when everyone has already experienced samadhi. You know, and rather than a goal to reach outwards towards, it's a state that's already existent within each of us. So this is important to understand that the whole foundation of the wisdom teachings of the East, including the yoga asana that comes from the, the teaching of the Sanatana Dharma or the Hindu tradition and the teaching of meditation and mindfulness that comes from the teaching of the Buddha, rely as a foundation on a very key principle that's missing from Western psychology, which is the fundamental belief in the inherent worthiness of every being, not worthiness based on achievement, not worthiness based on you're good because of this. You can become realized because of that or because you have to earn it or because you work really hard. The fundamental wisdom of the East says that the seeds of liberation, the seeds of peace, of joy, of Buddhahood, of awakening, right? The seeds of what we could call the bodhisattva, the fully awakened one that is still in the world, that that is within every human being latent, perhaps, or perhaps growing, but that that potential is the very foundation of our incarnation, the foundation of our existence, your existence, my existence. And whenever we say, I would be good if only if, we betray the truth of who we are at that fundamental level. If only I could do this, then I'd be good. No, that's not the way it works. It's the idea that that goodness is within already. And then we're, we're, we're doing what we can to grow that seed as much as possible. And there's a couple of ways that we do this. First of all, the tapas that we do in the practice. I'm sure everybody's heard this word tapas. But the word tapas, that we, what we do, and is very much like the removal of obstacles. We can say, how do we remove the obstacles? I'd like to talk a little bit about this, a metaphor in the opening prayer of the Ashtanga Yoga Method that presents the sage Patanjali as a jungle doctor, right? So we have, um, uh, he's presented as a vaidya, or a, it's like a jungle physician. But the idea is that Patanjali is presented as, uh, we can translate in contemporary ways as a shaman. And so in the same way that your Google Maps knows the way to anywhere on the planet, really, at this point, you know, um, the shaman, right, or the jungle physician, the vaidya, uh, knows the way out of the jungle of the mind. And I mean, I've never tried to hack my way out of a jungle. Anybody ever tried that with like a machete or anything like that? I never tried that. God help me. I hope I never have to try that. I think I'd be very bad at it, as a matter of fact. I, I, I don't think I'd make it, uh, to be on, in all honesty. I, I would hope that the GPS on my phone was working and um, someone would rescue me. But the metaphor of Patanjali as the shaman or the jungle doctor is the idea that samsara hala hala, the poison of conditioned existence, is the fuel that grows the garden or the jungle of our thoughts to the point where it's overgrown. And the thickness of the jungle is not external, but the thickness of the jungle of our overgrown, unchecked thoughts is in our mind. And Patanjali is presented as the shaman or the jungle doctor, the one who has hacked his way out of the overgrown thickage that is the obscured or untrained mind. And when we practice, what we're saying is, with the same tool that Patanjali used to find the way out, I also believe I can find the way out of whatever is obstructing my path. And in this way, we understand that that path must be already contained in the floor and the foundation of the jungle. That the jungle is not bad per se, but the jungle without the path leaves us lost and confused, right? 
So in this way, we understand tapas as the removal of those things which prevent us from realizing that firm foundation which is already inherent within ourselves, rather than going and getting something outside, rather than comparing, rather than saying, well, if she does this, then I should too. Well, you don't know. What, there's a different path for every, every, um, you know, every forest or every, every growth that we find ourselves in. The same path that works in the Amazon doesn't work in the Nordic forests. The same path that works in a flat landscape won't work in a mountainous landscape. So we need different paths for different jungles, different paths for different minds. And that's why we're working it out inside. Tapas is never considered to be easy. So some of you who are at the point in your path where you're feeling frustrated, you're feeling um, perhaps deflated, you're feeling um, perhaps because of an injury, perhaps because you've lost your way a little bit, perhaps because life can be challenging and difficult, perhaps because there are other challenges that are just out there, or perhaps for no reason at all, we can suddenly find ourselves feeling bored or disinterested. If we're at those points, we have to remember to reconnect to all of the keys that will illuminate our path. And we have to remember at that moment that we're not alone on the path. We're here together in community. Great. Even when you're alone, the community still exists. There's so many ways. So many people are joining remotely now. Right? There are so many ways to tap in. You remember that you're not alone, that it's not only your light that shines on the path. We remember that the first light that was on our path was not our own. It was a teacher of some type that somehow created just enough light for us to step forward. So what I want each of you to think about and take away is the validation of the effort that you put in, whatever effort that is to recognize that, whether it's the effort to face those difficulties or whether it's the effort to just come back, come back, come back over and over again. And at the same time, when you do that, you also honor the effort of all those who've come before you because they face the same struggles. You know, we can't create in our mind the idea that the yogis of times past were all perfect and we're the ones who are messed up. They were struggling probably with the same limitations and obstacles that we're facing as well. You know, if, we, if, they, if they hadn't have struggles, then the concept of tapas would not be so foundational to what this practice is about. So take away that validation of your own effort. Because as soon as you validate your own effort, you know what happens next? It grows. Then you become inspired to keep trying. And each time you get down on yourself, and each time you think, oh, well, look at me. I'm injured now. I don't have a lot of energy. And every time we get down on ourselves, what happens to our effort? It diminishes. It gets harder and harder to put in the work. So I really want you all to take away that validation of our own effort. Of course, the flip side of it, I do also want to briefly talk about before uh, we open up to any questions. And the flip side of it, of course, is what happens when you take that a little too far and you think, now I'm fabulous, right? Maybe you've been there. <laughs> or maybe it's still coming for you, right? But as soon as you have the thought, now I'm fabulous, that is the immediate time to go back and practice with your teacher. And I've had this happen numerous times. So my teachers were in India, and um, my practice time was primarily spent on my own. And they would really challenge me when I was there to do things that I felt I could never do. You know? Um, and there were a couple of times, particularly in the practice of asana, where I, I began to do that which I thought was impossible. Can someone share with me some posture that you think is impossible for you right now? Something? Navasana. Okay, Navasana. Just a whole Navasana for those five counts and do the lift up. And the impossible, the real impossible part about Navasana is what? What do you think? The last jump back. <laughs> right? We're here. Somehow you suffer through, you know, like the boat didn't sink. So Navasana means boat. So we're here. Somehow we're plugging holes in the boat here and there. We're bailing water out of our boat just to hold on. It's transforming into a canoe because we're about to, we're expanding somehow. 
and then somehow you made it. But then you got to lift up and jump back, and we think, no, <laughs> no, no, I don't do it. I'll just, I'll, I'll just lie here, right? <laughs> so it feels impossible, you know. I, it's hard for me too. I, I get it. So now imagine suddenly something changes in your practice. You don't know what, but something changes. It always feels like that. Suddenly something changes. And now, Navasana is suddenly easy for you. Huh? I can do it. I'm here. You jump back. Boom. Easy. Now, you start to anticipate Navasana. Wonderful. You know? <laughs> I can't wait to do it. And then we start to look around at everyone. Oh, look. Everyone is suffering. <laughs> I'm not suffering. Wow. I'm really something now. I was once suffering like all these poor people. And now... I can do this. Wow, look at me go. Look, I'm going to jump back now, right? So usually I've been like, you know, you attain something, you feel, wow, I've really put in, you know, all this effort, it's finally paid off. And I've been, I'll share with you a mildly embarrassing story, and I've shared this before. I think it's, it's very funny. Um, I was in a posture, not Navasana, but something else that I thought was impossible, and it was a lift-up posture. And I heard uh, my teacher say from across the room, lift up. My thought in my mind was, I wonder who they're talking to. <laughs> then I stayed in the posture and I was breathing. And then I heard the anger level increase. Mmm, lift up. You, lift up. And I thought, gosh, what's wrong with this person? <laughs> I mean, the least they could do is at least try. <laughs> Why are they not trying? Like, what is their problem? And I'm actually having all the time to think all these thoughts, and then I hear, which scared the life out of me, Kino, you lift up, and I fell out of the posture, and I looked up, and I think my face turned white, and I said, me, <laughs> but I was up. I cannot go up anymore. I was once down, and now I'm up. Isn't that good? Haven't I done good? And I wanted, like, Yay, you did good. Like, I wanted, like, the trophy award from kindergarten or something, you know? And then, and I just got, no. Lift up. Bore. And then, and try again. And I got, and I was like, okay. And I nearly cried in that moment. I just felt like, poor me. I was doing it. I wasn't, you know, and, and it was this hubris moment, this pride. I felt this pride. Like, I'm doing this. I was doing this. And then immediately, I was, it was taken away. And, and I realized that that's, that that's a fine line to walk. I generally end up more to the side of um, self-denigration and not validating my own work. And in the few times that I've gone a little too far towards pride, I'm so grateful to my teachers. I don't know how, like through a sixth sense or through some intuition, but they were always able to figure out that that quality was being born in me. And I'm so grateful to them that they were able to nip that in the bud before it started to take over and do real damage. On the flip side of that is that every time I practiced with my teachers and I came and I felt like, oh, poor me, I can't do anything. Look, my lift up is deteriorating now. My shoulder is hurting me and I'm stiff now and I was once flexible. Anytime I came with that attitude, they were always there for me with words of encouragement. <clears throat> How did they know the difference? I think it takes a little bit of experience, intuition. This is that kind of unseen aspect of being a teacher where you can learn from someone else all of the formula of how to teach. You can learn from someone. This is a good way to give an assist. This is a good way to teach a beginner. This is a good way to you know, say like this and speak like this and use these words. It's more inclusive. It's more friendly. All those sorts of things. But there, there's so much about teaching that I think is actually unteachable, but it's something that you can learn if you spend enough time in the presence of someone who has it. And I think something like that is, is, is this sort of unseen aspect of, of, of teaching and connection, which I'm so grateful that I spent a long time uh, practicing, uh, you know, before I started, started to, to, to really teach in earnest. Mm -hmm. Good. I, um, I think now I want to uh, give some time for some questions. If anybody has any questions, I also need to rest my voice just for one second, too. So if you have a question, that would be nice. And you're welcome to raise your hand or Tati, I see some paragraphs from people at home. So maybe Tati can get us started with 
who's at home who's been typing away. Nice paragraphs there. Physical, sure, physical question. I'm not doing anything physical, but I will answer your physical question. Okay, I'm going to repeat the question, make sure I understood, make sure I heard you. Um, it, the, the person's thigh is going numb in backbending in Urvodhanirasana and also in Kapotasana? <clears throat> okay, first of all, it's very good to be sensitive to what's happening in the body. So first of all, it's very, very good. Be sensitive to what's happening in the body. Second of all, numbness is something to be uh, marginally concerned with. Um, there's... If you're doing a posture, particularly like backbending, and there's numbness in the legs, this is going to indicate some misalignment that's happening in the spine. Um, and it is an indication that some of the nerves that connect your spinal cord with your legs are getting squeezed in a way that is disadvantageous for the long-term health of your body. So this might mean that you're pushing your backbend a little too far, or that there's a misalignment, or that... Um, uh, or that there, the last thing that could that there could be a misalignment in the posture, or there could be a structural misalignment in the body that is presenting itself to you in the posture. Let me break down what that might be, um, how that works. So let's say you totally cold and you decide to do a backbend. I've tried that before for a picture. I don't recommend that for anyone. I think a lot of people get injured trying to take pictures of themselves, and I think it's maybe not a good idea. Um, take picture of yourself once you're warmed up, like warm up and then take the picture. Okay, so this little side note. Uh, but I have tried once before learning that to do a backbend without any warm up. And I have also felt some numbness in the legs. Now I stopped and then I warmed up a little bit more and then the numbness went away. And then I've kind of like went into why that's happening. Usually when we feel the numbness in the legs, it's because the sacroiliac joints are either misaligned structurally, which means that you may have a structural misalignment of the way your sacrum is sitting between your sacroiliac joints, or um, a misalignment of the body, meaning that the body is not ready for the posture, the, the articulation and the movement through the joints of the spine hasn't been warmed up enough to facilitate the free range of motion. So we need to do more warm up in the lower back specifically and in the front of the hips specifically to give that freedom of space. If it's a structural issue, we need to get that confirmed with the help of a physical therapist, a chiropractor, or maybe an osteopath. Um, if it's something that you just need to warm up in the body, we need to warm the body up. If the, if, the, if, the, if the reason is because your body is not ready, you don't have the flexibility, then I really recommend not to go as deeply in the, in the backbend until you find that, 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 um, that space. Numbness is not something you want to push through in your back bends. You can have numbness in your shoulders and numbness in your legs. You do not want to push through that. That's really an indication that the technique is a little bit off. You're either going for too much flexibility, the body's not warmed up enough, so you're going too deeply, or there's a structural misalignment in the body that you'll need the help of someone, someone that can really diagnose that with you. All right? Keeping the equanimous mind. So the question is, any tips to keep the equanimous mind during sitting or during asana practice? Good. I talked a little bit about this to everyone who was in the meditation class the other day, but I want to, I'll say it again because I think it's a very useful teaching, something very useful to understand. The equanimous mind is not a peaceful mind, something hard to understand. The equanimous mind is like the sky. So we consider equanimity to be a vast container, and the equanimous mind is considered to be a sky, or like the sky-like nature of mind is the equanimous mind. So the sky is a container that is neutral, objective, and happy to hold whatever goes up into the sky. If there's a cloud, the sky accepts the cloud. If there are no clouds and it's clear, the sky accepts no clouds and it is clear. In the same way, the equanimous mind is the sky-like nature of mind, which is a vast container that's willing to hold all things. 
So when the mind is equanimous, it observes. Today, many thoughts. The the equanimous mind is able to observe many thoughts, many thoughts, many thoughts, and not lose its equanimity. The non-equanimous mind, as soon as there are thoughts, becomes more imbalanced. Oh no, so many thoughts. I can't believe it. Why are there so many thoughts? I have to go and figure out. Better book a session with my therapist. I was doing better. Now it's really bad. When you go to the therapist, I have so many thoughts. It'll only get worse because the therapist will go, well, what are they? Then you'll talk about them. And the equanimous mind just observes many thoughts. In the same way, the equanimous mind observes today, no thoughts. So the equanimous mind is that container which holds all things and all experiences. Same thing in your asana practice. And this is harder, I think, to do. And I think some, I don't know if it's harder in asana practice. We get a little attached to our asanas. The equanimous mind in asana would observe today, energy level very low. I cannot do very much. Look, I'm lying here, right? And then the equanimous mind remains the same. Then the next day, the equanimous mind says, oh, today, lots of energy. I'm jumping here and jumping there. It is not getting attached to the energy level of high energy, and it's not resisting the energy level of low energy or flexibility or strength or however many permutations of experience we can possibly imagine or go through. So equanimity and calmness are not the same. However, eventually, sooner or later, everybody will experience clear sunny days, just like everybody sooner or later will experience the stormy days. Equanimity is transcendent of what we could call the vicissitudes of our life experience or the highs and lows, the ups and downs. If our equanimity is dependent on um, controlling the weather, you could say, of our mind, then we'll never be equanimous. But if our equanimity is independent of the inevitable ups and downs, the vacillations that our mind and our emotions and our body takes in the course of this incarnation of our human life, then equanimity can give us something which you could call a transcendent peace. And that's why it's hard to understand because we often think, well, in order to be peaceful, I need to be thoughtless. I need to think in a particular way. But equanimity is a teaching that helps us transcend. Um, you know, and I think that offers a lot of hope because we never need to solve all of our thoughts. I don't know about you, but if I had to solve all my thoughts, I need a few more, a few more thousand lifetimes to deal with those. And some of you would think too much and you have tens of thousands of lifetimes. Sure, Vega, you got a question? So super good question. Um, and I'll just repeat for everybody at home also. Um, if you're in the if you're in the Mysore room as a student and somehow, even though you're doing your drishti, you somehow <laughs> through your peripheral vision. (laughs) Notice that there's all sorts of stuff going on around you that you're not capable of doing in that moment and you feel kind of down and you feel kind of, "Hmm, how do you pull yourself back, right? Um, And I will say that every single practitioner has been there, myself included, whether it was when I was first starting or whether, uh, I, I think for me, when I was first starting, um, that was exciting. So when I was new to the practice, it was exciting. I would be there. I remember my first Mysore, the first time I walked into a Mysore room, first thing I saw, some guy with both legs behind his head. And I was like, oh, ooh, that wasn't on my little sheet. You know? <laughs> and, uh, you know, and so I was like, wow. And then, and then as I was walking out, I saw someone in a handstand balancing. I was like, wow. When did we get to try all that? You know, and that was really, for me, it was very exciting at first because it was just, wow, this is awesome, you know? Um, and then at some moment, you start trying some things which feel really cool. And then for whatever reason, we may backslide, we may move into recidivism. So if we, if we have that situation where we've been practicing for a while, maybe we drop off the practice for whatever reason, life circumstance, life is difficult, sometimes we lose our practice, or injury, sometimes we're injured. 
And an injury is painful. It's a grief, sorrow associated with injury. I once did this. It's gone now. You know, and it's like a grief, you know. And, and then we go to the practice. We meet that grief. And then there's a sense of longing. And it seems like everybody else is doing that thing that we once did that we can't do anymore. And then there is a teaching in that. And this is the hardest teaching that there is, is I need to sit with what's coming up for me when all of this is happening. And then what can be useful in that moment is make the practice easy for you. You know, whether it's skipping the jump backs and just doing the asanas, whether it's letting yourself be in child's pose, whether it's stopping and doing five minutes of meditation where you come back to the sensations in your body and you feel the sensations and then constantly reminding yourself, I'm not working asana right now. I'm working the tapas of my emotions. And so we're, remember, I'm still doing tapas right now. I'm just not physically working this and that. It's harder in that moment to process grief. It's harder in that moment to process loss, comparison, jealousy, you know, and then try to replace those thoughts with sympathetic joy and acknowledgement of self, independent of achievement and those things. But that, that, that's actually one of the deepest parts of the practice. If you can survive that hurdle, you can probably practice for your whole life, you know? Because at some moment, I imagine when we're 90, if we want to keep doing some asanas, we have to be prepared for the loss, you know? I would imagine at some moment, <laughs> you know, we start like returning some asanas and just remember them for what they once were. If you're the beginner, and so this I find happens very often, if you're the beginner and you want to quit, because you're next to someone who's super advanced, I always find that very sad, you know, because that person represents what you could be after 20 years of practice, you know? But again, if we play the paradox of choice, then we'll end up thinking, well, my peanut butter is worthless, <laughs> you know? And so the idea with the beginners, and this is something psychology-wise for teachers to think about, is that there, there are few, not all, but very few um, students who can accept to live with the big comparison. Many students will become inspired by being challenged to a maximum of 5 to 10% from whatever their starting point is. And if very few students can get excited, there's few of them. I was one that I was excited to see somebody with their legs behind their head. Some people will think, gosh, this is really not for me. I better go back to spinning, you know? <clears throat> so I've noticed that psychology-wise, the average, most people, not all, as I said, but most people are happy with the challenge of about 5 to 10% from where they are. Because it takes a big mind to look at someone who got their both legs behind the head and just think, wow, that's 20 years of practice. I've been practicing for two days. Let me chill out a little bit. <laughs> you know? Yeah. We got a question? Yeah. Sure. Um, the equanimity, if you were kind of focusing on internal issues, like if there's some external, any test that's an external, yeah. Oh, absolutely. So, first of all, um, how do we bring equanimity to external stimuli? Um, and <clears throat> first of all, the planet is annoying. You know, uh, there's a lot of annoying things on this planet. Uh, Miami drivers are definitely up there, you know, people do all sorts of weird things. World famous, I think, Miami drivers, maybe, you know. Uh, it seems to, as soon as you go north, it improves the more north you go. Once you, like, pass the, like, the snow line, then everybody follows the rules. I think it's something about snow that you're, like, gets your stuff together, you know what I mean? You're not going to do any, like, let me just roll the stop sign, because you're going to hydroplane, and, you know, so you, like, but, you know, I don't get your stuff. To, it's cold. I do feel people get their stuff together a little more. Florida, we're all kind of like half in the swamp. Right? So there's other annoying things. Uh, the classic example of, uh, of, of annoying things to disturb practice are um, sounds. You know, what we'll do to create quiet, you know, quiet, try to make it quiet. So often we go to a meditation retreat and then they'll have a room within a room. 
So we like have sound barriers to create a room within a room. But then what do you put in that room within a room? What do you put in there? What? People, exactly. And are people quiet? Oh no, sit there and don't move. And what do you get? <laughs> you know, and then we just people. Or someone's like, I'm going to get a little seat for myself and make it better. I sat next to someone in a meditation retreat, and every day, this person, they got some new creaky device. <laughs> and every time they move, and I was like, at some moment, I was like, I am going to murder someone. I'm going to commit a homicide in the middle of the meditation. Here I go. I'm just going to get up. It's going to be over. And then we're all going to be quiet. Quiet. Everybody, shut up. Stop <laughs> moving. And then, and then, you know, so the, the, the traditional teaching is quite, quite intense about this, right? Which is if we need the external world to be in a particular way before we can become equanimous, then we will be chasing pleasure and pain in a futile attempt to control external circumstances, leading to only more suffering, anxiety, misery, and pain. So the teaching says when we think we're reacting to external stimulus, what we're actually reacting to is how that external stimulus registers within us. So that if we could become neutral to how we feel when that annoying sound happens or that annoying experience happens, if we can simply take our attention back to ourselves and register breath, body, mind, breath, body, mind, breath, body, mind, then we can remain equanimous so what's happening? It doesn't mean we're detached from action, because remember, equanimity and awareness leads to wisdom and compassion, so we can take action, intelligent action, right? So use your example in Florida, I think a very intelligent action is to, um, someone cuts you off without using a turn signal, an intelligent course of action in Florida is do nothing, because Florida, <laughs> you don't know what that person is capable of in front of you. You know, you've seen, there's like, if you haven't seen the Instagram only in date, there's all sorts of road rage that comes on and suddenly someone stops their car, gets out with the stiletto and starts like banging on the windshield. And you're like, right, cut me off by all means. <laughs> Go ahead. You're having a worse day than I am. And if we become, re- and we become aware, like the, the feelings, we just like let it pass through us. If we don't feed it, it'll go. And then we may even be able to, after we are equanimous to our sensations that happens, wisdom, wisdom could open up. Oh, I'm so, look, I didn't, I didn't honk. Congratulations. I've improved my reaction. Wonderful. Step one. Step two, compassion. May you be happy. May you not cut people off. May I never see you again. <laughs> it's very difficult. Right? Very, very difficult. I ended up sending Meta towards my squeaky lady, you know, the squeaky lady. She was really squeaky. And, um, and, she, and she was like the classic like person that you would put in a course to just annoy everyone because she was squeaking and then she would get up, walk around the room. You're not supposed to get up. She's like, get up, walk around. Then she'd come back and sit down, get up, sit down, get up, sit down. And I talked to her after and she was really nice. <laughs> she was just this awesome person. And she was like, this was so hard for me. I nearly died every day. And then she said to me, and you, you just sat there like the Buddha. And I was like, yes. <laughs> Indeed, like the Buddha. I did contemplate your death at some times, but yeah. You know. <laughs> so, you know, you don't know, right? You don't know. We can only manage our own stuff. This is very difficult to apply the teachings into life, which is why it's useful to come to retreat, to come to immersions, to come to environments where we're aligned with all the same people who are trying to do the same things, because then at least we can support each other in that, and we go out into the world where people aren't on that path, then our, our, our um, discipline our commitment is really, really challenged. And at some moment, we need to go back away from the world and go into retreat setting and kind of reconnect. And then, okay, and they can go back out into the world. And this is why we say enlightenment for the benefit of all beings, because the idea is twofold. First of all, we're better in ourselves, so we feel better. And then our goodness is a light unto the world, which can hopefully inspire others to work on that within themselves. 
right? And so that, and then finally, eventually, if we do work on that with, well within ourselves, we eventually have genuine compassion, genuine compassion for all those who have been so unfortunate not to step onto the path, you know? So this is, uh, uh, the Guru Ashtakam has this line, tatakim, um, tatakim, that's just repeated over and over again. And it's essentially saying, without the Guru, without the teaching, without the light on the path, what then? What then? Well, I know, we all know what then. We'd be out there honking, cutting people off, spreading our misery around, you know? So we know, what then? What then? Right? And eventually, when we get to that space, everyone who's on the path, so much compassion. You haven't had the good fortune. Whatever karma has been in your life, your life circumstance, you haven't had the fortune to practice. I'm so sorry. May you find that in this lifetime or the next. You know? Sure. Could you give me another question? Okay. This is a good question. So if you want to get more strong and more flexible, is practice enough? Um, or should you do extra stuff like drills or other, other stretching? This is very dependent on the student. So first of all, practice is absolutely enough. It may take some time. So if you only have time for practice, just do practice. You only have energy for practice. It's enough. It may take time. So what's time? 10 years. I usually say 10 years, like a decade. This is a good time to think about. Now, if you're someone, you have a lot of energy, you have a lot of time, you're hungry, you don't know what to do with yourself, rather than watching Netflix, yeah, sure, do some drills. You know, if, uh, if you feel like, so often when you come to, like you take a little holiday sabbatical from work, and then you're going to say, okay, I'm going to go to study with this teacher for some period of time, or go to India, I go on meditation retreats, and then I have all day. Wonderful. I love going to like somewhere past uh, like the Middle East, somewhere in Asia, because I have the whole day, no one in the United States is awake. <laughs> Nobody sends me any emails. There are no text messages that come in. Then I go to sleep before they wake up. So I don't know what happened. I sleep and they're going crazy. I wake up the next morning. I can choose to look at the emails or not. I love that. Then I spend the day. I sit for a long time. I, you know, explore different aspects of contemplation. I, you know, and so I feel have all this time. If you have time like that, you can do more and you can do more. Even just developing a sitting practice can dramatically improve flexibility and strength. So this is something, just to hold yourself in the same position in a seated posture can improve flexibility and strength. So that's something that can be done. That's the subtle work that kind of reflects back to asana. Um, some people that find themselves getting too much injured because they have too much energy, too much like, I have so much energy, I love the practice. I want to do this drill to get my handstand. Then I want to do this drill to get my leg behind the head. And then I want to do this series of stretches to open my back bend. This person I recommend to do no drills because they have too much, too much, um, like the too much fire. That person, if they're going to do something, I would recommend the sitting practice or like a, a, a very relaxed yin practice that moves into a non-doing space. It's very dependent on the student. But in a sense, essence, practice itself is enough. But take time. Mm -hmm. Okay, Stella, question? I feel like you've answered this, but I can't quite get it. It's like, how do we tell the difference between gentleness and like not enough effort? Mm -hmm. Well, um, th there's always a vacillation between those two. So the fact that you're thinking about it is probably enough to indicate that you'll never go too far um, into, you know, too much laziness. The fact that you're thinking about it, if it is enough. Am I actually being gentle or am I just being lazy? Already that is effort, right? So the person with the too much, if they go too much gentle... Then you start, it'll deteriorate into, um, you know, uh, no more practice and staying in bed. So if you have too much staying in bed, then, you know, you, know. Yeah, then it's too much. <laughs> but if you're on the mat and you're here and you're thinking, oh, gosh, my knee feels a little sensitive. Am I being too gentle? You're good. <laughs> All right. Too much gentle is I don't practice anymore and I stay in bed because it's what I need. 
you know, when instead of practicing, you're like, you know what would be great instead of practice today? A massage. <laughs> I'm going to get a massage today, and that, they're, they're going to work on my body, and I'm going to be aware. So it counts, right? Then it's too much. You know what I mean? Some of you are like, that sounds great. I need to do one of those types of practices. I'm not against massage. Get the massage also. Just do the practice too. Make sense? Yes. Right? Yeah. Good. Tati, is there anything else that's urgent from the chat that we should take a look at? Maybe one more since we're almost at the time. We got maybe one more. Okay, um, so I think the question is, is it okay if I have a circuitous path, a non-linear path in the Ashtanga method? So in Ashtanga, we're a traditional method, we're a lineage-based practice. So at some moment, we need a contact with the lineage. What that contact point looks like for everyone is going to be different. So there are, for example, um, Tim Miller, who is the first certified uh, Western teacher. Um, he spent many years practicing with Patavi Joyce, and he uh, was teaching for many years in um, Encinitas. He's a really wonderful human being who's very missed in the Ashtanga world, who we continually send a lot of metta towards. He's just not teaching right now. We hope maybe one day he'll feel good enough to teach again. Um, the reason why I bring up Tim Miller is that there are some students of Tim's who, who their touch point into the lineage was him. And they practiced with him for 30 years. And then they started teaching. And that counts too. Maybe they never went to, uh, to Mysore, to India, to, to connect into um, sort of the origin point of, of yoga and of Ashtanga yoga. But they had their teacher and they had their contact into the lineage. And he was taught by Patavi Joyce and, and for many, many years. And for whatever circumstance, I know, I know a, few of, a few people like this who, because they had um, um, a special needs child or an aging parent who needed uh, you know, care and they were the only caregiver for their parent, they could not take the time to go to India. But they teach now. And, and, and they wonder, am I okay? And I always say, absolutely. You had a traditional teacher at some moment. And then there are people I talk to who started Ashtanga Yoga completely on their own. They found in a video and they started doing it. They wrote a book. They started doing it. It's a great entry point. Do that. And at some moment, I think like the student is saying, go and practice in person because nothing can take the space of actually meeting someone in person. Practice with them for some time. Make your relationship to the lineage. And it doesn't have to look like someone else's. You could practice with someone for a little while, then you could get inspired and go to India. I have a, I have a student of mine that um, she kind of started with me and I kept encouraging her because I just thought she was gonna love the experience of Mysore. You've gotta go, you've gotta go, you'll love it. She went and she was like, I didn't like it. <laughs> <laughs> Am I banned now? <laughs> you know, Do I need to quit Ashtanga because I didn't like it? I'm like, what did you like? You're like, it just, she just said it just wasn't for me. I didn't really like it. I like to practice with you. I like, I love the practice. Can I still practice? Am I still allowed to teach? And I said, it's totally fine. You went there. It's your relationship. I'd rather have you practicing than not practicing. So definitely keep practicing. Like 10 years later, she decided to go again, you know, because I kept, maybe go back. Like, what do you think? 10 years later, she went again and she was like, it's kind of still not for me. <laughs> I like the country and everything. Maybe I could go and just visit some cities next time, which is fine. Okay, it's a, everyone finds their own contact to the lineage, but to put the question of lineage into your thought as a teacher of Ashtanga Yoga is very important. To figure out where do I place myself within this lineage um, is very important. What is, who are my teachers and how do I sit in relation to my teachers? How do I respect my teachers? How do I respect the lineage? Because even if you decide you want to have a non-traditional relationship to the lineage, the reality of the fact is that you wouldn't be practicing Ashtanga yoga without the lineage. So everybody needs to figure out what their relationship is to the lineage, how to respect the lineage on their own terms, what their relationship is to their teachers, how to respect their teachers within their own terms. What that means for you, you have to answer. Huh? I can't answer that for everyone, but I encourage everyone to think about that and answer that for themselves. Make sense? Good. Hey there, it's Kino here. I just wanted to thank you for tuning in to my podcast. Your support and your time and your attention really mean a lot to me. If you're enjoying this podcast series, 
You can find the full-length videos on my online channel, OMSTARS, and that's at www.omstars.com. You can redeem a 14-day free trial and get access to our full library of over 3,000 classes and also practice yoga with me online. I'd also love to see you in class sometime. So you can find my full live in-person teaching schedule on my website, which is kinoyoga.com. And if you haven't checked out my books, I'd absolutely be honored if you'd check those out. You can find those available at any online bookseller. The Yoga Inspiration Podcast is designed to keep you inspired to get on the mat. And I hope you're leaving each episode with a little glimmer and spark of the spirit which is the true heart of the yoga method. Thanks so much for tuning in, everyone. May you be happy. May you be peaceful. May you be filled with love. Namaste.